tariffs on Chinese imports are helping some American manufacturers and hurting others. What's the bottom line impact on domestic producers? Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is a Supply Chain Brain podcast. The escalating trade war between the U.S. and China is having a serious effect on producers in both countries. Some have already raised prices to cover the additional cost of materials. Others are uncertain what to do. Still, there are some steps, both short-term and long, that producers can take to mitigate the impact of tariffs. Today, we'll get a perspective and some advice from Johnny Chocolater, national leader of the International Trade and Regulatory Affairs Practice of the accounting firm BDO. He'll tell us about the impact that the tariffs have had to date and whether importers have been successful in petitioning the government for relief. We'll also discuss workable strategies for the months ahead at a time when international trade tensions show little sign of slowing down. So here is my conversation with Johnny Chocolater. Johnny Chocolater, welcome to the program. Thanks so much, Bob. Happy to be on. Johnny, who is getting hurt today by the tariffs that have been imposed between the U.S. and China as a result of this ongoing trade war? Well, Bob, there's always winners and losers in these kinds of actions, and it really does depend on where in the supply chain you're in. A lot of times in discussions of this sort, we tend to generalize, but at the end of the day, if you are importing goods from China... And if your goods are on the United States Trade Representative's list of tariff increases, list one, list two, or list three, you're going to be paying anywhere between an additional 10 to 25% on your imports. Those are directly the responsibility of the importer of record. Oftentimes, who that party is can vary. But generally speaking, this has been a challenge for a lot of manufacturers and importers and distributors who may or may not be able to transfer those costs downstream. If they are able to transfer it downstream, you have other parties that are also challenged by that, primarily retailers. And then at the end of the day, the ultimate customer is likely to be seeing a price increase. Others that are challenged by this are folks that are in the supply chains that support the product development phase, right? So if you're a designer and if you're an engineer and, and you're, you're supporting larger orders of this type, these cost of goods sold end up impacting potentially how you might go about designing and assembling your items. It's a process that requires some analysis, and it's caused a lot of folks to go back to the drawing board to their alternatives. Well, we can talk about those alternatives in a moment, but I just want to get the sense of it. It really does seem like, in terms of industries and types of companies affected, pretty much across the board now, it has escalated to that point, has it not? Yes, I think that's correct. List 1, List 2, and List 3 have successively targeted larger arrays of products. And at this point, the industries and the sectors that are affected, they span a very large pool. Everything from consumer electronics to raw materials inputs for things like steel, fibers, fabric, when you're talking about machinery and various components that go into machinery, it really does span the gamut. 
You say there are winners and losers. I would imagine that the winners, at least on paper, would be those domestic industries that were supposedly being protected by these tariffs. But there are also, as you point out, downstream processors, especially for take, for instance, steel. Those might be domestic jobs that are also manufacturing jobs that are getting affected. So there's some losers in that supply chain, even domestically as well, is there not? Yes, I think that's correct. One of the telling things about this whole process came to fore in the hearings that USTR held a few months ago, basically asking folks that are part of industry to talk about their concerns during the rulemaking process. And I recall attending those hearings, and for every session where there were anywhere from 10 to 20 testimonies provided from different companies and different trade associations. In certain days, only one or two companies would actually speak favorably about these tariffs. And those tended to be the domestic companies that are among the few that tend to not rely upon imports from China. They might develop those products here, but more often than not, when you look into the testimony that was exchanged, they also imported goods, just not from China. They imported them maybe from Korea or from a different country that is not subject to the tariff increase. At the end of the day, those folks do stand to benefit in the sense that their competitors, which is, I think, the majorities of most of the industries, they do face higher costs and have to adjust for that. All right. Well, let's talk about some of the strategies that manufacturers can undertake in order to alleviate, avoid, or somehow diminish the impact of these tariffs. Let's take one by one this idea of filing petitions for relief. What is involved in that and how successful do you stand to be by engaging in that kind of a process? There's different programs, and I think the one that we are most concerned about right now is the Section 301 action. And so that's affecting the greatest number of companies And under that docket, USTR, as we mentioned earlier, they've split up the tariffs into three tranches, list one, list two, and list three. The first list and the second list, USTR opened up avenues for the regulated community to file what are called product exclusion requests. And that is basically a request that USTR basically exclude a certain subset of items that would be imported under a listed tariff code from these tariffs. For list one, the deadline has passed and closed. After that, it was pretty clear that a very, very small fraction of requests was actually granted. The second list, list two, those product exclusion requests are actually currently, the the docket is currently open. And for that docket, the deadline is December 18th. And at that point, USTR will have According to the federal regulations, uh, federal register notices that it has announced it will take 14 days to review the request and respond. And similarly, the industry is expecting that the amounts of approvals are probably going to be fairly low. List three, which is spanning the largest number of items that are covered under this action, does not yet have a docket open. And so a lot of folks are taking a wait-and-see approach to see if uh, USTR opens that up. So far, it has declined to indicate whether it will or won't. But likely, if they do, it'll probably be in the first quarter of next year after the tariff adjustments fully kick into place. Which list applies to the Steel Manufacturers Association, in which they apparently petitioned the USTR for relief on 66 out of 132 requested tariff lines. That's not a bad record. You say the odds of succeeding aren't so great, but it sounds like they did. Which which list was that? That was in one of the early actions. That is a very good point to mention. 
The steel industry did a very good job with their product exclusion request. They identified, if you look at the, the petitions that were submitted, they provided very data-driven analyses showing the kind of economic harm they're likely to sustain. And not only did they provide very effective use of data for their request, they also very skillfully engaged their elected representatives in, that uh, represent the various jurisdictions in which they operate to apply pressure and let the government know that there is a lot of jobs on the line here. And so we've seen that a coordinated approach between companies' government relations teams, along with their supply chain and operations and finance teams, really uh, does a good job. And I think steel associations reflect that in a, in a very good way. At the end of the day, these submissions have three primary elements to them. The product exclusion request has to identify with specificity which products are subject to your request, right? So you have an HTS code, you have a lot of different products that could fall under that. You've got to be able to define with uh, product technical details and things of that sort, how your products can be distinguished from other products that may not receive any relief. The second element that the steel industry provided that was, again, very effective is the financial sales data associated for the prior three years. This is a required element of the submission and closely tying those to the products that you're actually requesting relief for. And then the third critical component of this is demonstrating the economic harm that is affecting your company and not just your company, but the industry at large. And again, those should be data-driven and beyond general assertions of harm, but actually showing what kinds of investments you will not be able to make as a result of these actions, what kind of job losses are potentially there, and actually modeling that out. Those are the aspects of it, and I think that the steel industry really did a great job in combining those from a data element, and then in engaging their elected representatives to make the case, either through phone calls or also with cover letters, that this is affecting a lot of folks in their constituents. It helps, does it not, to have enough lobbying clout to be heard. So I imagine that smaller manufacturers or those that are unable to bind together in an industry association probably have less chance of success in this regard, do they not? It's a fair point to make that those with the ability to engage their elected representatives do stand a, a chance of being heard. That's how this process tends to work. It is unfortunate that some companies will have, will have a difficult time with that, especially because resources are tight. And this is not an easy thing to shoulder. But this is one of those times where even if it's not engaging lobbying teams and lobbyists, a lot of companies have very meaningful relationships with their local constituents. An announcement to your employees telling them to reach out to their elected representative can go a long way. That doesn't require lobbying support, but it does bring attention on the matter to those that have the ability to apply pressure. This is not solely the purview of expensive lobbyists. There are a lot of grassroots ways that companies can raise attention on this. It is challenging, however, because truth be told, a lot of companies may not want to go and advertise the fact that they're in trouble. Oftentimes, small mom and pop shops, as well as larger companies that are built on tight margins, they're very actively, and, and for a long time, they're interested in cultivating an image that shows that they can weather the storm. There's strategy involved in media relations of this sort and in public relations, but at the end of the day, it is an effective tool that companies should consider utilizing. Okay, beyond that now, though, there are other strategies as well. One is more of a longer-range strategy, and that is to reevaluate one's sourcing. 
to what extent is that even possible today? A lot of companies feel that they need to be manufacturing in China because of the costs or because of the established operations. I mean, to what extent can companies seriously revise sourcing strategies to get around these tariffs? There is no easy answer to that. And that is part of the challenge and frustration of a lot of companies. If you're importing goods for which there are a lot of other sources and alternatives, it may be a matter of evaluating merely cost and quality. I say merely, but that is not a small task. That requires uh, careful analysis and, and a lot of resources to really map out what would it take to find alternative suppliers that exist? The problem becomes when you're dealing in goods that are highly specialized or where a lot of what you're importing is custom order and it's for specific platforms and it's possible that those platforms won't exist after a certain period of time. And so for those importers and manufacturers, it's a much more challenging situation because then they're really looking not just at existing suppliers, but how do you build those suppliers? Many of the companies that we interact with have had these experiences where it's kind of like a deja vu moment. Some of the executives I talked to, they're like, you know, we went through this process 30, 40 years ago when we were first looking at how to source this particular good, and we haven't had to revisit it since then. There is indeed a component of, is it even possible? And so for those companies, the alternative sourcing might not be an option. And, and that is a, a dangerous reality that we're looking at. But for the companies where it is an option, it is critical to examine what all of the different countries and the areas are that they're already importing from. It might be in Asia, it might be in, in other parts of the world. And also looking at how they can deploy their own engineering and in the, their own design skill sets to support their upstream partners. It goes beyond cost. It's also a, a matter of technical feasibility. What impact have these tariffs have or are they having on domestic and international mergers and acquisitions? We are right now in a period where M&A activity has largely slowed down in Europe and a lot of parts of the developing world. When you're looking at M&A activity and you're looking at the potential impact of tariffs, it's important to consider that there's a lot going on in the global stage that affect M&A activity and that affect that slowdown. I think that the tariffs are one factor, but I do think it's a little early to be able to draw a conclusion conclusion that M&A activity slowdown might be directly related to these tariffs. The tariffs have without doubt caused jitters in markets, but what it does is it forces companies that are looking for targets to look deeper. In the past, they may not have been as concerned with all of the supply chain implications of their target. They might just be looking at the sales end of things. But now I think that companies that are looking for targets are also examining potential implications from a supply chain standpoint. For targets that are actually interested in being purchased, they also are facing tougher questions right now about the numbers that you're sharing with us. They are reflecting a reality that might have been the case prior to a lot of these tariffs codes being in place. I think that there is a slowdown. I think that it's giving companies pause to make sure they're conducting their due diligence appropriately. It's opening up avenues into due diligence that traditionally were not core parts of the M&A review process. But I think it's still a little early to tell. I mean, between Brexit and tax reform and a lot of the other factors that are going on to slow things down, this may be one more factor, but it's important not to overstate it this early on in the process. You know, we've been talking about both short and long-term solutions, and it must be difficult for a company looking to the long-term because the question arises as to how long these tariffs are going to be in place. Might they come and go with diplomatic changes, or for that matter, might they be invalidated or removed 
by Congress, because after all, the president, at least on paper, does not have the power to be doing what he's doing other than for reasons of national security, which is what he's been citing as his reason for this. And it gets to be a little bit thin after a while when you talk about all these products. Is it possible that these tariffs might vanish in the next year or so and that maybe companies shouldn't be worrying about making long-term adjustments? Companies have to have a bifurcated strategy. They have to have both short-term plans and long-term plans. And in the short term, these tariffs are here. They're here to stay. So examining alternative supply lines, examining whether a product exclusion request makes sense, looking at the potential foreign trade zones, looking at whether due to drawbacks apply, looking at your classifications closely, those are all part of the short-term game. The longer-term game has to be looking not just at alternative suppliers in other countries and rebuilding the supply chain, but also what products that you're importing are actually core to your business. Looking at regions where the cost margins are different and the geopolitical realities are different. This administration is effectively utilizing tools that have not been utilized in a long time to address other concerns. We haven't been hearing much about the South China Sea. We haven't been hearing much about a lot of the other traditional things that has driven a wedge between China and the United States. We're talking a lot about tariffs and in the short term, the Chinese economy has definitely suffered as a result of the administration's actions. So a subsequent administration may very well find that these tariffs are achieving objectives in some of the other geopolitical areas that make it worthwhile to keep. And so I don't think it's as simple as thinking, okay, well, with elections, maybe there's a different administration that comes into place and maybe the tariffs will go away. I think we have to plan for the tariffs being here at least for the remainder of this administration and likely subsequent to that, the courts have generally given the executive branch very, very broad deference when it comes down to international monetary decisions and trade relations. At the end of the day, we are dealing with these, we have to deal with them, and we have to plan as if they're here to stay. When it comes down to alternative sources, I've had a lot of conversations with executives where they're like, well, how do we know who's going to be at the end of the gun next? And to be honest, I don't think anybody has a good answer for that. One way to look at it is so far the trade imbalances that have been the stated purpose for these actions, the trade imbalances so far have largely been limited to China. If you're looking at smaller players, smaller countries that might be fertile ground for potential supply lines, the risk for those countries being subject to similar kinds of tariffs are fairly, I think, lower than countries that at least this administration considers potential competitive threats. We've seen the administration take certain measures in the trade context, not in these uh, Section 301 actions against the European Union, and that has resulted in some negotiations and potential differential treatment. We've seen the same happen with Canada and Mexico, and we also see actions taken against large countries like Turkey. There are many other countries that are traditional supply sources that may not offer the cost advantages of the China per se, but that are more similar in that respect from a cost standpoint that are probably not going to be in the list of at-risk zones. So these are all considerations to keep in mind, and absolutely, we have to take both a short and a long-term view for them. Well, it's good to know that there are some strategies that companies can undertake to at least mitigate the impact of these tariffs and maybe also create wiser long-term strategies for sourcing as a result of this experience. But Johnny Chocolater, I want to thank you so much for helping us to understand the dilemma that manufacturers face today and some of the possible solutions they can implement in order to, again, to alleviate the impact of that. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you, Bob. Appreciate it. 
That was my conversation with Johnny Chocolater of BDO, talking about how to mitigate the impact of tariffs on U.S. manufacturers. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time.